The players have been successful. They have escaped the island of Skagros, and they've returned to Outpost 9. The almighty and all-powerful Dungeon Master, however, is far more critical of his success in setting up his storyline. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. Forty-eight hours before landing on the island of Skagros, the dwarf Constantine, played by Mike, is called to meet with his boss in the Thieves' Guild, Miggs Tenfingers. Now, Miggs is not holed up in some basement. He's not in the back room of some inn in some secret hidey hole within the town, but rather his lodgings can be found in the citadel that sits on top of the bluff overlooking Outpost 9. And this is where the Ravenest guards are located. This is where the law essentially operates in the town. Constantine is allowed inside. He's brought high into one of the towers where he finds Miggs at dinner. Miggs offers him some food, asks him to sit down, and then proceeds to ask him about himself. Where did he come from? What has he done? Mike, playing Constantine, is in the middle of a flashback right at the start of our second session, and the questions that Miggs is asking him are basic questions about who Constantine is. I wanted to have an opportunity to showcase a little bit of how his character was different. And he hails from the Underdark, and we made a very specific background for him. He was something of a courier who operated between the Thieves' Guilds and different cities within the Underdark. He's a ranger, but he has lots of rogue-like capabilities. Miggs is testing him. Miggs is trying to find out if this is the man who can actually run this operation into Skagros. Because this flashback also serves to remind people why they traveled on the boat and why they got to Skagros in the first place. They're there to retrieve an iron casket, a small little iron chest, from the pirate captain, Nupo. The intent is not to pay her for it. The intent is essentially to kill her and take it. None of that has worked out. We had a really interesting exchange between Constantine and Miggs, and I went out of my way to cast Miggs as a neutral aligned character, and I'm not talking about his actual alignment. What I'm saying is I didn't want him to appear as a villain, neither did I want him to appear as an ally. I wanted him to appear as someone who could potentially be either. The options are still open. Miggs offers Constantine a choice of payment. The choices are he'll pay him 100 gold for one day's work, but to get the 100 gold he would have to return the iron cask Two MIGs completely unopened. Option B was no 100 gold, but you're able to open the cask and you can keep whatever is inside. The secret goal of all this was, of course, to ratchet up the mystery and the tension and the question mark around what is in this little iron casket. From there, we cut right back into real time. We're at the beginning of the what will become the combat encounter at the beginning of the, the session. Everyone seemed to enjoy the flashback. It was something that we did, I think, fairly quickly. 
It wasn't a very, very extended scene, and I pretty much cut it after Miggs made this strange offer to Constantine. I don't think any more information would have really been gleaned from that exchange. And so we jump right back into the jungle. Voss, the shadow sorcerer, has been sent forward to see if the coast is clear, and she found out that not only is the coast not clear, but the jungle itself has begun to surround them, and it's animated these corpses of even recently dead pirates to come and potentially kill the party. She's able to pull back, warn the others, and then they have to figure out what are they going to do. So they determine that they believe there's a, a, a lighter density of these living vines to the west, and so the party begins to move in that direction. But the vines are beginning to close in, and I'm using the battle map in roll 20 to greatest effect. I have limited light resources for everyone as well. Things are hidden, and only when they get close to the corpses themselves do I pull forward the zone that the entangling vines are really located in. So in the beginning of the battle, it's kind of a game of blind man's bluff, as the real threat is not quite visible. This turned out to be what I would categorize as a fun, challenging encounter, but not a deadly one. There was no point where the players were in any danger from the living vines of, of being defeated. They kept their distance where possible. A couple of them got entangled, so they got to see the full effect of what that was like, but none of them got to the point where the vines were able to do any real significant damage. Some of the corpses, when they were animated, were made to attack the party, and a couple of them did get hurt, but not to the point where I'd say they were in any real danger of, of going down, even at first level. They did, in fact, find a little bit of a flaw in my setup, so they were able to over time, and, the, and this whole encounter took maybe about an hour and a half to two hours as they attempted to navigate and negotiate through it. And in the end, they found a way to move west after they had destroyed, I think, four or five different clusters of vines. And the pirates, who, if you recall from the last episode, I had placed on the board so that if the party got in trouble, I would have the ability to bring the pirates in as a distraction for these killer vines. In the end, what I wound up using them for was actually to ratchet up the tension, because at this point, the party had handily gotten themselves out of the threat of these entangling vines. They were making it plain that they did not intend to run deeper into the jungle. They were attempting to move around them. And so I needed to bring in the pirates to kind of keep the tension up, versus where it was heading, which was they were just going to be free and clear, and they were going to head out of the jungle and then try to figure out a way to, to get off the island. By having the pirates start to run towards them, we had what I consider to be a little bit of a theater-of-the-mind combat with the pirates. So there wasn't a map that was overseeing the battle with the pirates because the party was running, running while carrying this big raft, mind you, and they were shooting crossbow bolts and fire bolts and different spells and whatnot at the pirates as they came at them. And eventually they used some interesting techniques. I think Calda, the tiefling wizard, had a really cool idea to combine thaumaturgy and firebolt to try to scare them. I let him roll an intimidation check with advantage. It worked, and so the pirates, who were being picked off pretty handily, and there was only a small cadre of them, maybe five, 
they were not inclined to follow so much after that. They break cover from the jungle, and now they're seeing that the main pirate's ship, Captain Nupo's ship, is still on the shore, but there's a lot of lantern lights, and there seem to be guards posted across the shoreline. And so it doesn't seem like they'll be able to get to the water there. They're going to have to break across the sand dunes, heading all the way back east to where the crags are. They make a number of checks, and they roll really well, so no one's really spotting them. And then they get into the crags, which, if you can recall from an earlier episode, that's where the kobolds are. So I begin rolling for perception and random encounters to see, will the kobolds find out they're there? Will the kobolds actually start to come after them? And I rolled very poorly. In the end, they were able to get the raft into the water, which, again, as you may recall, was something I was a little dubious about. But the druid has a shape water cantrip. That, coupled with the size of the raft, which I had researched online, it did look like it would be fairly cramped on its own. It probably wouldn't be the most seaworthy vessel with five of them in it, but the five could squeeze in there. That, plus the ability to shape water, seemed like it made sense that they could potentially make it the 15 miles across the water back to the mainland. They made it through the Bay of Fins and back to Outpost 9 after a very, very grueling and demanding eight hours of rowing across the, the open water. At that point, I could have ended the session, but I wanted to go just a couple of ticks further to see what they would do. Normally, I don't like to end sessions where I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen because it hobbles my ability to prepare between sessions for what's going to happen next time. So I can't start the next session by going, well, what do you want to do? Because if they say something that I absolutely haven't thought of, I'll really be caught flat-footed and I won't have anything prepared and I'll have to make everything up off the top of my head. So I went a little bit further just to see how they would react. They head back to the inn where Calda is staying with his master, Riziki, who is this very elderly divination wizard. The two of them, per the backstory, had been sent to Outpost 9 in search of a mystic tome called the Balnexicon. Little is known about this, but calamity has already befallen them, again in the backstory, where a knight who is sent to keep them safe died of a sickness while traveling by ship to get here. But it's the only one of them that actually has a room and an inn, and it's off the beaten path, and therefore they decide they're going to stay together, they're going to go there, they're going to get some rooms, they're going to get a night's sleep, and then in the morning decide what their next step is. But when they arrive, they discover that there's a bit of a commotion. Calda is a tiefling, but he's not comfortable with it, so he's using the spell Disguise Self to take on an image of a human that he's used before. It's how they're used to seeing him here, and when they see him, the owner of the inn is pretty angry. Riziki is being charged with murder. Apparently, he slaughtered three people in their room and made quite a mess. Guards begin to come over, things start to get a little dicey, and in the end, the final statement was from an NPC guard saying, arrest those men. Pretty interesting to see Calda with his sort of nervous, twitchy, innocent, lazy apprentice act going on, trying to figure out a way to navigate these guards that are essentially accusing him of being an accessory to a heinous crime. And that's where session two ended. For session two, what worked, what didn't work? The fight in the jungle with the vines worked really well. 
I used the capabilities of Roll20 to greater effect in order to present, a, a, I think, what was a nice balanced challenge for a first level group. It's very non-standard. I have a number of players that have a lot of experience, and so this whole thing was about not making it, you're a caravan guard, there's a couple of goblins, basically rehashing everything that all of the material, certainly, that's being put out for 5e seems to to utilize. Not knocking any of that, that's all still good, perfectly fine. We just wanted to approach something very differently, and since that was the goal, I'd have to say mission accomplished. The map I set up was massive. It was it was actually several jungle maps that I that I had purchased through Roll20 that were stitched together so that it created something insane like 100 by 100 squares to operate within. I was very careful to place the party in an area so that I would have maximum usage of the map. And then they proceeded to find somehow, some way, the best way to drive just in one direction so that only about 10% of the map actually wound up being used, and I rapidly found them coming up against one of the edges. The best laid plans of mice men and dungeon masters often go awry, and certainly it did in this case. Overall, though, I think that this encounter was really successful. It was something that let everybody shine just a little bit. There were a number of things that were just non-combat oriented going on, just enough of it to make it interesting, whether it was navigating through the jungle itself, having to carry the, the raft, uh, Bren, the half-orc fighter played by Joe, and Mir, the human druid played by Bruce, were both carrying the raft with one arm and trying to fight with the other arm presented an interesting challenge their movement was slowed down they had to figure out how to navigate their actions so they'd be able to move in tandem they had to climb these ridges to get out so while that's going on they're also fighting and trying to cut a path through these things and i think it was interesting to see this group that's not quite yet a group managed to deal with this challenge I think the flashback in the beginning worked really well. I can see where I could do a lot of these things, especially at this stage in the campaign. Every single one of these characters has a rich enough backstory that I would be able to do a flashback for each and every one of them that would be relevant and on point and useful information. I'm not going to lie, I'm tempted to do that, but I think I'm shying away from it because it's a gimmick and a trick that can get tired real fast. I certainly don't want every session to have one of these little cutscenes. I would much rather find a way to have these NPC interactions that are occurring as a part of the real-time effects and decision-making of the party in the game. I also think the conclusion in the inn, it was only a few minutes of role-playing, that seemed to work pretty well, and I think it set the tone for everyone being excited to play in the next session, which is always what you want. Where things were not perfect was this middle zone. They've escaped from the jungle, and now they need to figure out what to do based on the information in front of them. And I said in the beginning of this audio journal that there were failings on my part to properly set up the group. And there's a number of things on my mind, but let me start by outlining what happened and why I'm not really happy with how I set things up. This was all about decisions and very open-ended decisions. They're on an island. There's a ton of things they can do. This is not, there are three doors in the room, you're going to pick one. No, this is a six-mile long, two-mile wide island. They can go deeper in the jungle. 
there's multiple places they can try to find access to water with their raft. There's multiple threats. Not Some of them are obvious, some of them are imagined, some of them are potential. It wound up being something of a compound complex thing because not everyone was aligned on their goals and not everyone was aligned on the approaches that could be used for those goals. They, number one, had to decide, do we just want to go deeper into the jungle? And I think the, that decision was not a decision about, hey, we're all, we all know we want to get off the island. That was a decision that was about, what do we want to do? Because deeper in the jungle, there was all kinds of tantalizing things. In the map, I showed them this ancient roadway that was buried by the jungle. If they had gone just a little bit further in that direction, they would have seen that I had designed a, a sunken staircase that went down into a crypt. They never quite got there, and that probably would have enticed them a little too much. But overall, they were making this decision to say, do we want to adventure on this island? It seems like there's some interesting stuff to be had here. Or do we want to try to get off? And if we're going to try to get off, we're definitely not going deeper in the jungle. Although not everyone was aligned with that. Some folks were like, well, does it make more sense to go through the jungle to the other shore? And I think some of the players were gung-ho for that. Others were thinking, I don't think logistically we would want to carry a raft through this dense of a jungle. On top of that, this jungle is supposed to be very dangerous. Is that the smartest play? My point in outlining this is to say there was a very compound, complex set of decisions that five people who don't know each other all that well needed to come together and make. No one wants to jump into the quote-unquote leader's position, because I have this theory that in role-playing games, mature players at least, have no desire to be the person in charge. They want someone else to be the caller of the party in real old-school parlance, or the person who's the boss, quote-unquote. Because the truth is, all adventuring parties, I shouldn't make this sweeping of a statement, but I, I think 99% of the time, your band of players are all ne'er-do-wells who basically do not do well with authority. So no one's going to be listening. Everyone wants to kind of be part of the group, but at the same time have this fantasy of doing their own thing. And so decisions like this, especially when a cadence and an order of dialogue don't really get set up. And the only reason I, I flag this is something that it was not was suboptimal, is that I don't think it was fun for the players. I started to detect the slightest notes of frustration as they were saying, well, then let's just go do this. Let's just go do that. Let's just bring the raft over there. Screw it. Why don't we just go over here? Why don't we try to take the pirate ship? It would be awesome to have a pirate ship. All these things were being thrown on the table. I think there were different variances of people, different personalities that lend themselves to these kinds of discussions, other personalities that would rather light themselves on fire than deal with this kind of ambiguity. The reason I'm flagging myself as the culprit for this was I went out of my way to design session zero so that these characters would be interconnected. Those interconnections should have been the basis on which the, the players could lean into role-playing in this kind of a scene to make it more fun and less of a sort of planning decision-making exercise that we all deal with in life and to be honest probably don't want to deal with so much in role-playing games. In the grand scheme of things I'm hitting this way harder than I need to just because this is the point. I want to pull out the things that I don't think worked perfectly and assess them. 
in the end, this was probably about 40 minutes of banter and talk in the group, which is totally fine. They're supposed to do that. And in the grand scheme of things, it probably was not that frustrating or that difficult. No big deal. We all move on with it. But it's something where I really want to keep an eye to fine-tune the relationships between the players themselves, the characters, and get to a point where a moment like this could be a lot of fun. Because that's the thing I think that bothers me. It was a missed opportunity. It could have been an awesome moment where characters really came to the fore. And to be clear, they all still were playing their characters. I was just being very sensitive, picking up on a couple of points where I'm like, I think that person's getting a little frustrated with this and they'd be happier if a decision were just get made. In the end, they got there. They just made the decision. I think they made the smartest decision because every other decision was fraught with danger and peril. And I kind of did want to get them off the island and back to Outpost 9. I didn't push them in that direction, but that is natively where they went. And so to the water, and then as I was thinking, should I make it more difficult for them to navigate in this little boat? Just because of where we were in the session and the time and everything, I decided, you know what? They've got a good plan. They've got rationale for why this should be possible. Rather than be a dick about it, let's just say, hey, you can do this. There's going to be some checks. But overall, let's let this work. I just rolled a natural 20, and it's flashing. So to conclude this audio journal, the things that are on my mind, things that'll come up in more depth when we get into the next session, which is planning for session three, there's three questions that are, that are popping coming out of the experience of session two. The first one is about facilitating the group cohesion, what we just talked about. That's not really 100% on me, but I want to do some thinking about that and try to find ways that I can help the players to find the cadence and the relationship between the characters so that when they do get into these decision points again, there's no note of frustration that it's purely something that is a role-playing opportunity that they can embrace. And part of me thinks that's going to be a function of um, micro interactions. And what I mean by that is rather than have five characters all trying to glom in and make a decision, which is not really optimal, break them into groups of two or three, get them just comfortable interacting with each other. Not trying to make a big deal about it, but just take the opportunity as it, as it comes. Second question is, I have walked into on purpose with my eyes wide open the classic DM trap of players hate to be captured. I've got them in a situation where the guards want to arrest them. They are not going to let the guards arrest them. I don't care what I do, how I soft sell it, how clear it is, how overwhelming the odds are. Chances are that the players will do everything in their power to avoid being captured. I think dungeon masters, by and large, are storytellers. And it is such a massive trope of heroic stories to have the heroes get captured. We can't help ourselves. We want these scenes, we want these moments for the players and the characters. But we forget that it is primarily a game and the players will do everything in their power to avoid being captured. 
the third and last thing that's in my mind is about the flashbacks. I think I've reached my decision. I'm not going to do a flashback in the next session, but it's still on the table. I think there's a lot of great story to be mined and things that will be valuable by doing these flashbacks. So I'll keep it in my back pocket for the future, but I'm not going to hit it over the head and I'm not going to necessarily use it in the next session. That's it for this audio journal, the recap from session two. We have a bit of a break before the next session due to real world things. And so what I'm planning on doing is I'm going to have the standard next episode, which would be the planning for uh, session three. But in addition, there's going to be another side planning exercise because now that they're in Outpost 9, I've been doing a lot of work building out Outpost 9, and it's a little bit more of a noodly thing. But I've actually been able to video record my process of drawing out the town, and I think it would be interesting to see because the the game session for session three would have had almost a month, about four weeks from session two to session three. I'm using that video to send to my players as a reminder of certain key things so that they're sort of refreshed as they get back into the game. And I, it, it struck me that it might be an interesting thing to see in, in something called anatomy of a campaign to see how this stuff got built. And it's just a hell of a lot of fun and I get to show off my drawing capabilities. Although now that I've said that, I don't want to set the bar that high. My drawing capabilities are far above average, but they are not stellar. I'm not a professional artist. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing, throwing us a review, or sharing with your other gamer friends. Thanks for listening. <laughs>